Downloads of the show are available at Podomatic.com or the Podomatic mobile app. Hey kids, you are listening to Radio Free Brooklyn and this show is Fish Out of Agua with Michelle Carlo. Today is Tuesday, February the 6th, 2018. It's midwinter, the midpoint of the winter, and we have a lot of show for you today. So we're going to open with this song, which we kind of like because it's about seeing things in another way and going for it, which our guest artist is also going to talk about in a way because she'd like to do that a little bit too. Okay, Lou Reed, take a walk on the wild side. She was everybody's darling But she never lost her head Even when she was given head She says, hey babe Take a walk on the wild side Said, hey babe Take a walk on the wild side And the colored girls go do 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 here and a hustle there New York City is the place where they said hey babe take a walk on the wild side I said hey Joe take a walk on the wild side Sugar Pump Ferry came and hit the streets looking for soul food and a place to eat to the Apollo, you should have seen him go, go, go. They said, hey, sugar, take a walk on the wild side. I said, hey, babe, take a walk on the wild side. All right. Huh. Jackie is just speeding away. Thought she was James Dean for a day. Then I guess she had to crash. Valium would have helped that fashion. I said, hey, babe, take a walk on the wild side. I said, hey, honey, take a walk on the wild side. And the colored girls say, do, 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 Thank you. 
And we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. That was Walk on the Wild Side by Lou Reed from his Transformers album in 1972. Yeah, there's a lot of transforming going on these days, and I'm not just talking about from gender to gender. There's a lot of things changing, a lot of things morphing, a lot of things transmogrifying. How's that for a fancy word for change? Well, our guest artist this week is going to talk a little bit about that. But first, here's a song that she handpicked for this episode. Something like a Terminator Ain't no 
And we're back with Fish Out of Ogbon, Radio Free Brooklyn. That was Janelle Monet with Tightrope, the solo version, which was a single that she released in 2012. Yeah, I would know I usually blah, 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 a lot more when I'm doing these. But we, well, we have a guest artist tonight that, um, or today, I should say, that is totally fantastic. And I just want to get right to it. So now... It's time for my favorite part of the show. Whoa, whoa. Welcome to Fish Out of Agua's Guest Artist of the Week. Woohoo! Whoop, whoop. Whoop, whoop. Every week I say this is my favorite part of the show because it's true. Because every week I get to sit down with one of my favorite people in the world. Yes, I know. Once again, every week I say that the person that's sitting across to me or next to me is my favorite. This person is just like nodding at me. He's like, when is she going to shut up and let me talk? You can, <laughs> you can do it in a second. Please welcome um, Poet. Writer, performer, the solo performer, and so many other things. Dacil Acevedo. Hello, hello, hello. Hello. Oh my God, I am so glad to finally have you on the show. I can't believe I'm here, and I can't believe I'm one of your favorites. Well, I feel really you know, special now. It's well, yes, you should feel special <laughs> as long as we're together in this room. No, <laughs> it, it's situational favorite. No, it's not. No, you are actually one of my true favorites because we go back a, f- a few years, a yeah, sprinkle geez. of years. <laughs> so, Dasiel, um, let's talk about how we met. We met the New Yorkian Poets Cafe in the Lower East Side. Doing Soul Latina. Oh, yes. Yeah, that was Soul Latina. Yes, Soul Latina was um, a Latina variety show that was yeah, yeah. that was um, put together, conceived of, and put together by Linda Nieves Powell, whom we interviewed last season. And let's, let's talk a little bit about that. Oh, we did a few different places. We we yeah. uh, we took it on the road. We it, it went went a few places, and you know it, we did it. I think in two thousand five. I think 2005 and six. Mm-hmm. It was a lot of fun. But I remember being shocked. I was like, oh my God, look at all these Latinas. They're all writers and they're all funny. I know. We have Marilyn Torres was on there. Oh my God. Oh my gosh. So funny. So, so funny. Um, God, I, you know what really um, struck me was when we went to the different colleges and like, I'm going to use Chicago as an example. It's like, Blue All these Puerto eyes. Ricans in Chicago? I didn't even know, like, like naive me. I'm just like, well, Puerto Ricans in Chicago? They were like hundreds. Puerto Ricans in Wisconsin. Yeah. Madison, Wisconsin. Mad- yeah, University of Madison. A whole sorority of them. I know. Uh, and a fraternity. I was like, what? what are these people? We are here? everywhere. And you're not even Puerto Rican. I am not Puerto Rican. <laughs> I'm Dominican, but I, it just didn't matter. I was just, I was just shocked. I was like, just what Latinas. What just... are you doing here? So um, so let's talk about a, a little bit about where you're from. You, you were... Born in New York, right? You are Dominican. You were, were you no. born here or there? I was born in Queens. Yeah, and then I guess my parents didn't like all this cold weather all the time. And I guess it was like the the 
Summer of Sam. It was like this crazy summer in New York where all these crazy things were happening and they were like, let's get out of here. So they went back to Miami, which was sort of like in between the DR and New York. Mm. You know, it was like, oh, it's the, the happy medium, I guess. Right, you can still have hurricanes, but you don't get winter. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, um, oh my gosh, Summer of Sam. I remember that. I, I was, was I, I was a teenager. I don't care. I'll age myself. I was a teenager when, when that stuff went down and it was... It, it was, was weird, scary. it was crazy. And my mom was like, I can't. There was a blackout. <laughs> yeah, it was really scary a, for her. Yeah. She had two little babies and she oh, was wow. like, I just I can't deal with this. Yeah, New York was kind of like well, a lot of people consider it to be very romantic and wish that we could revert back to those days. And to which I say which part? Music and the theater and all the amazing art that was happening. Yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah, but not, I want to walk into any bar and just see Patti Smith and be like, hey, girls. Yeah, I mean, you know, some of, the, <laughs> some of the graffiti was cool. Some of it was just ugly. I know you did some of it. Yeah, oh, <laughs> yes, I did. Yes, I did. You can read all about it in the Fish Out of Agua book. We won't talk about any more about that now. Okay. <laughs> anyway, um, did you always want to be a performer? Did you come from a creative family? No, my family, they're all working class. They're all like, you know, construction, factory workers. You know, my grandpa was a salesman in DR and my mom worked as a seamstress. Like very humble people, you know, just very, we work hard, you know, you raise your family, you live and you know, like a simple, honest life. And this artistic thing, I mean, I was like the black, sheep with pink stripes or something in my mm. family. And uh, yeah, they did not understand how I came out this way. And they were like, I don't know where you get this, but you need to channel it into something. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it didn't belong in my family. Well, they didn't get it. Wow, well, how, how did this first, how did this artistic affliction first manifest itself in your youth? <laughs> Well, it was definitely the fact that I would, I had many imaginary friends and I would create imaginary scenes, scenarios, entire like storylines. And I mean, I, 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 I just read like National Geographic as a child and I watched Masterpiece Theater. Oh, wow. When everyone else is watching like, you know, I guess my little pony <laughs> and I'm just like what are, you know they're like what is with my child and wow. I think it was my dad my dad had an incredibly eclectic collection of music he listened to jazz and country music and he loved Madonna and like I mean you just did not expect your dad like Madonna yeah that's like so weird that, they got some, that somebody's father like he had a Madonna poster oh what, yes from which which record the uh the the true blue one. Oh my what did your mother think about that oh she just gave up she was like whatever he's so weird your dad <laughs> had a so, so, so did she used to say that you that you got your weirdness from your dad's side of yeah, the family probably I mean I was way weirder than him but but yeah most of it, yeah as soon as I got into school, I guess it was like first grade. Wow. Wow. And I just started writing poems and reading James Baldwin and like in the third, fourth grade. And I just wanted to read, read, read and write poems while other girls wanted to go to the mall. And, you wow. know, like, so you were like a, a kind of like a geek and an artist at the same time. Yeah. I love it. That's probably what we get along. So um, did you do any performing when you got into like high school and stuff? I went to an excellent performing arts high school in Miami called New World. 
Oh, wow. School That's of the nice Arts. Name. And it had just opened, I think, like four years before I got in. And we had to audition to get in. And kids from all over the, you know, the area, you know, all different districts and parts and neighborhoods came there. And they were bused there and, the, you know... And we had a music department, a dance department, a visual arts department, and a theater department. And that's you were in the theater department? Yeah, so you had regular school the first five hours, and then you had three hours of art school. Really? Yes. That sounds fantastic. It's like we shared some of a like Miami-Dade college campus for a while, and it, was, it felt like being in college. And it just felt so good to be out of like this clicky high school thing where, you know, I didn't have to deal with any of that stuff. We were all a bunch of artsy freaks. So like we all belonged there. Like, you know, we're like all the kids who don't belong anywhere and we all just sort of Yeah, the fish is out of agua. <laughs> yeah. We had a little home there and that, it was really wonderful. That's Some fantastic. Amazing people. Like the guy who wrote Moonlight went to that high school. Really? Many, many, many years after. I was going to say. Like, he, I didn't go to school with him. Okay. <laughs> like, I could probably be his mom or something. But, yeah, he, like, amazing artistic people have come out of that, you know, that place. So <laughs> did you actually think that you were going to become an actress when you, quote, unquote, grew up? Was this, was this like, in your head from the beginning? Or did it, was that actually, something that no. came? I thought, there's no way that... You know, because everyone tells you this. You know, like, there's, that's not sustainable. That's not... That's true. That's not something you can do as a career. You know, that's just a fun thing you're doing now because you're young. But, you know, you have to get a real job. Mm. It's, you, you took the practical route then? You didn't try to go for a performing arts college? No, I didn't at first. I thought, you know, that's just... That's just a pipe dream. So you, you gave know? so you gave it up for the the whole time where you for got your degree. For an entire semester, I gave it up. Oh, for an entire semester! <laughs> <laughs> I love That's it. How long I lasted? I could not take it. I was like, Oh my god, ah! six months! Yeah, seriously, I was like, I gotta. Oh, Did you move I, back to go to college? I came to college. Here. What, what what school were you going to? Uh, I went to NYU. Oh my god, that costs money, girl. Did you get scholarship? I know, I didn't have any money, and um, I got some scholarships. I like you know bunked on a couch like mm. with cousins or whatever, and. You know, I, it was really, I had amazing teachers. I learned a tremendous amount, you know, like I'm glad I did it because I got to like have just so, so you're the cream in, of the crop teachers. Wow. And NYU has such an amazing um, theater the, and art yeah, department also. Yeah, and it didn't also. even occur to me to, to try to join Okay, it. so you're at NYU. <laughs> you were on like an academic educator's trajectory. Yeah, but history, more like in right. a history. Mm -hmm. And then I went to go see a play. It was The Tempest in... Central Park in the Delacorte Theater. And it j I was bawling my eyes out by the end. But but this, I hadn't seen anything that blew my mind. Completely blew my mind. And I was like, whoa. And it was performed, it was in another language. I think it was a Brazilian theater company. And it was all in Portuguese. And it, I, I mean, I know the play, so I knew the story. And it was just so amazing and beautiful. and. You're sitting in the del in the park and the sky. You could see the sky, and it was like it was just gorgeous. It was Shakespeare. It was like the the like public theater Shakespeare yeah, the in the park, the Tempest, and it wasn't in English. No, it was a wow it was an international company. Wow, that was doing the Tempest. I mean, you know how they have like several yeah, yeah, plays yeah, 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 or whatever. Yeah, yeah. This play was was I guess so. Th this gave from this made the acting bug bite you in the culo again, and then mm -hmm. what happened? Yep.
I went back to Miami and I was like, okay, I got to make a plan. How am I going to do this? Where am I going to go for acting? I have to audition to get in. So how am I going to do this? NYU just turned out to be too expensive. So I just couldn't handle it. And one of my friends from high school went to Purchase College. SUNY Purchase. Yes. And she was like, you should audition for Purchase and come up and visit me and check it out. And then I came up and visited her and I was like, this program is really cool. I can dig this place. These people are pretty real. I like these people. I know so many people that came out of that school and, and m many of them are working artists. So that school is doing something right. They sure are. And um, I feel like I got a, I, I just was always into the craft of it and the art of it. Mm. I did not excel in the business part of it. <laughs> I know, it, it, but you know, back in the 90s, I'm gonna say, um, the business part of it was so different than the business part of it today. No social media. Yeah, in no the nineties. No, the internet was just basically beginning. Like, if you were really progressive, you would have a website. But like, who even had a website? Nobody. You know, actors did not have websites. No, no, no. And you know, we didn't even have like we had. Oh God, we had voicemail and beepers. Yes. Oh my God, beepers. <laughs> we had beepers. And, yes. And then you had to call your answering service, your voicemail, um, like twenty-five times a day. It was insane. Yeah. And you from a payphone. From a payphone. <laughs> now they're just urinals. I know. Oh, God, please. They're just public urinals. Hi, Dior. It's so true. Um, so when you got out of Purchase, uh, what happened next? Well, I started doing theater in New York City. Right out, right out of the gate? Yeah, I just started doing that downtown thing. Mm. And I said, you know, it, it was, it's ironic because I thought, you know, as an ethnic person, there's going to be nothing out there for me. And so, like, I'm just ready to work hard and get out there and pound the pavement and do all that. And actually, like, I actually got a lot of interest from, like, agents and casting people and TV shows and auditioning for, like, oh, well, pilots tell us, like tell, tell us about some of them. That's fantastic. I bombed every single one of them. That's fine. We, we, we want to know what you what you could have <laughs> been. I'm a could have been. Uh, so what, so what, what were the big things that you bombed on? Uh, I, think I got a list of those too. Oh New my god! New York Undercover was one. Oh my god! Ally McBeal. Yes, Ally McBeal. I auditioned for that, and um, yeah, I was just. I, I, it's like you know when you like come up in school of hard knocks and you're you're poor, like you grow up poor. You can't. You're not ready for like success and people being interested in you. You're like, what? <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> like. Uh, what are you talking about? You want me? You think I'm what? What? Yeah, I mean, I, I always think it's so, it's it's sad and interesting at the same time that so many times we think we're frauds. We think that we yes. we don't see in ourselves what other people see in us. So when somebody acknowledges that or you get this validation, you're like, who? Me? What? Yeah, and it's like, why? Why, why do we shoot ourselves in the foot? Why do you think that is? Is it because we're women? Is it because we're Latina? Is it because we remember the 90s? No. <laughs> what but do you think that is? I was terrified. I was absolutely terrified. I've always had to work from the bottom up. Mm. So like, I, just being given an amazing opportunity, you know, I did, I thought, well, I mean, do they know me? Like, I'm just some poor girl from like Hialeah, Florida. Like. What are they thinking? This is a major, you know, television show on a major network. Are they crazy? Like, I can't do that. 
Like, how could I? So with all those um, near misses, you had to get some good gets. What were you, some of your gets? Well, I think it was the theater that really did it for me. Mm -hmm. And when I started, and this was after many, 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 many years of just feeling totally like I don't belong in any of these industries. Because I would go to TV auditions and feel like, I can't relate to any of these characters. I'm nothing like this. And, you know. I'm so you didn't see yourself anywhere in, in any sides that you were given. No one was writing for us. Right. Basically. And what I wanted to do was like Shakespeare. And, you know, I would get, you know, the, the bar wench or like, you know, the ensemble part where you're just basically like, you know, stage parsley in the back. Yeah, you're basically yeah. an extra. Yeah. Yeah, your background, your theater background as opposed to movie background. And I love it. And I loved it. I love the language of it. And I just could not find where I fit. I, I think, I, I know things are different now. But oh yeah, they're they're getting they're changing yeah. quite yeah. a lot. Like I, it's no, not I, the same. I don't think I really started to thrive until I started to write my own stuff. Yes. And at what point did you start? Did did that little bell go off in your head? Well, I started going to poetry readings and open mics and at the know, New Yorker Poets Cafe yeah. and, and other places. And Bowery Poetry Club. Yes, Bowery and, Poetry Club. Uh, did you used to go to Surf Reality? I think Ever maybe. But I, yeah, I went to like a bunch Collective of Collective like, Unconscious? Yes, of course. Yeah. And, you know, I sort of love that vibe where people just get up and they just, they're, they're just, they're being real. They're creating, you know, what, what they want to create on their own terms. And it just felt like I can, I can be here. I can, there's a place for me here. There was always just something interesting going on. And I just sort of like to be where the weirdos are. It yeah. makes me happy. I don't know. And, and writing my own stuff, like when I came upon Soul Latina and somebody actually wanted Latinas to be funny. And how did you find out about Soul Latina? I think it was, there was an ad in the backstage or something. And, oh, okay. Or somebody told me about it. I can't even remember. But I thought, my God, I could be funny? I didn't even, it didn't even occur to me that I could be funny. And I auditioned for Linda. And, you know, I wrote this piece, and I was so terrified. I just, I, I never thought I could be funny. Like, Latinos aren't funny. Like, all the Latinos that I would see in a play or in film and TV, they were never funny. Unless they were some huge stereotype of, like, you know, the grandma, the naggy grandma with the with the house dress on. Or mm, the, with the, the vata. charro, like, yeah. East Chacon thing. And those, neither one of those things are me. So, yeah, so, no, I, I agree with that representation because I, oh, growing up, there were no Latina um, people for us to look up to. I mean, yes, it was Rita Moreno and, and Cheetah Rivera, but I'm just talking about, like, for comedy, like, on a, on yeah, a for regular level, yeah, nobody was funny unless they were the butt of the joke. Yes. You know what and I mean? It seemed to be, like, like, they, you know, like, these characters were sort of, not, I, I kind of resented that sometimes they weren't intelligent. Yeah. And I, it pissed me off. And I was like, I, I don't want to play that. that. And that was what was and so it's great. it's not interesting. No, it's not. You know? that, that's what was so great about Linda because she always worked at, she always insisted that we work at the top of our intelligence. She wanted us to tell real stories mm -hmm. about our lives and, and things that, that really speak to us that, that people can 
hear and immediately identify like, oh yeah, I did that. Oh my God. Oh, that happened to me. Right. You know? Because it's, you know, it's universal human experience. We just happen, it, we, it just happens to be Latina theater because we're Latinas in it. You know what I mean? But every story that we told, every piece that we did, every poem that, that was recited or it was all came out of universal human experiences. And right, and, and I started to explore this whole funny aspect of myself. And, you know, I started enjoying being funny, but I felt like the things that I would audition for and the plays that I would get were so not that. It was always, you know, a serious drama or like people, a drug addict or, you know, some downtrodden person struggling with immigration or something like that. And it was always dark and struggling and going through hardship and those characters are, are important but it's sort of like when it when they're all the same it becomes not important anymore yes so um you also have done a lot of solo work so how what was your segue from like soul latina when, when that ended up ending did you realize at that point that you were writing for yourself so much that you wanted to start doing solo shows how, how did that come about well i thought okay um, all right, I'm going to be a professional actor. I need to start making money at this and have a career and join a union and, you know, mm. build a pension. I was like, I have to really commit myself, you know, to this career. Then I can't be doing all these other, you know, things in my life that I enjoy. Right. But I got to be serious actor. And, you know, so I really put my nose to the grindstone and I did regional theater. And it was really rewarding and great like I got to do some phenomenal plays and I grew as an actor but then you know the economic crash happened and everyone lost their jobs and all the work dried up for everybody actors business people everybody and you know my friend Tamala Woodard who's a director and she does a lot of immersive theater we had worked together on a something called the faith project at Bowery Poetry Club mm -hmm. She invited me to a, to a writer's forum and, you know, uh, to read something. She just bring anything, read it. And she came up to me afterwards and she's like, you should do your own solo show. And I was like, I don't know how to do that. I've never done that before. And she's like, well, I do. So just start writing it and let's do it together. And I just basically, she would just give me a prompt and she'd be like, write, just, you know, pick a topic and start writing about it. And over a two year period, we developed like a solo show that became Will Work For. Terra Nova Connect Collective. Yeah, they had a festival called Solo Nova. Yes. That was all solo performers. It was at IRT. It was oh, like yes, IRT. Christopher yes, 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 yes. And this is like what? This is like four or five years ago, not even. Yeah. Yeah, four or five years ago. Yeah. Wow, and that's great. So it, and it took two years for you to, for yeah. you guys to work on this together. Yeah. Isn't I, that amazing how long it takes to yeah. birth a show? It really teaches you, there's, it, you have to respect the process. You have to respect it. It takes as long as it takes. And if you want something to be good, you gotta let it marinate. Exactly. You don't try to force, you know, a souffle to rise. You let it do its thing. And if you mess with it, boom, it'll fall. Could you just give us a, a couple of sentence synopsis of what it was about? Well, since I was jobless, and unemployed yeah and everything was just it seemed like the, you know the whole world was just crashing and burning and you know i was 
trying to desperately find a job and I couldn't really put my mind towards anything else creative. <laughs> so I just started writing about what was happening to me at the time because, and I felt, I thought it was just nonsense, like frustrated job interview madness that I was, I was like scribbling down, but I was like, this is, this is where I am. This is what I have. And, and then somehow I started, you know, writing things about my parents and them and their, you know, work, their, like how they came to this country and their immigrant story and like, you know, how did I learn how to work? Like, what is that all about? Where do you get your work ethic? You know, I learned it from my mom who worked, you know, three jobs and she's never been unemployed in her entire life. Cause you can't be, you have two kids and you got, you know, you got a house to pay for, you know, and, and just like how radically different her life is from mine. And, and then I was in that unemployment office with just hundreds and hundreds of other people just like me looking for a job. And we were all on the skids, broke, desperate, and it's not cute, you know, it got really bad. And then like unemployment benefits run out and they cut it off. And at the same time, it was to the 2008 election started happening and there was all of this, you know, President Obama, the whole Obama revolution and, you know, Occupy Wall Street and all these things were happening at the same time. And I had way too much time on my hands. So I was sitting there watching all of it and saying, my God, people have no idea what it's like to look for a job nowadays. And when 500 people are online for one barista job at Starbucks, mm. yeah, that one lucky person is going to get a job and 499 people are still going to be shit out of luck. Like, you know, back to the drawing board. So, you, so that your show will work for it just took all the angst out of looking for a job during one of the worst recessions in, in uh, recent times and you just put it on the stage. Yeah, I wanted to let people know what it felt like. I felt like being unemployed feels like a dirty secret. Like you can't really say that you're unemployed. You're like, oh, I'm looking, I'm in between jobs and I'm waiting to hear about a job. But people don't talk about being unemployed. It was kind of like this dirty little secret. And then once it turned into six months, a year, year and a half, it started becoming like a, you know, you like a stigma. Yeah. Like, what's wrong with you? Why can't you get a job? You know? And people didn't have sympathy anymore. They just blamed you. Like, oh, you're, it's your fault. You lazy, whatever, you know, welfare queen, whatever. And it was, it was amazing how quickly, you know, it shifted from sympathy to like pointing fingers and blame. And, you know, I totally get, I went to Occupy Wall Street and I just watched, I just watched the people there. And you had these young hipster people, but you also had middle-aged white women, black women, men, bankers, scientists, all kinds of people from all different, you know, union workers, people from all walks of life in the same sinking boat. Like, what the hell am I supposed to do? I did not crash this damn economy into a ditch. Why am I paying for it? Well, your, your play was a wonderful, was just a, a wonderful answer to that. I mean, it was really well received. And where did you get to take it next? 
I did it again in New York City, which was really cool at IRT. They hosted me for um, for the fall uh, residency. So you, got to, so you got to do a run. Yeah, a natural I got to do run. A That's full great. Run. That's great. And then I did it for the LA Women's Theater Festival. Oh, I, I was in that festival too. Oh, All right. I love yeah, that little yeah. festival. It's so fun. I went to the San Diego International Fringe Festival, the DC Fringe Festival, and last year I did it at um, the First Person Arts Festival in Philadelphia. Oh my God, First Person. That, that's great. So you just took this show across, so this show became your job. You took it across this, the country. Oh, of course, but I didn't get paid anything. Yeah, I, I know, I know. <laughs> no, you're, lucky, you're lucky you break even on the fringe, but well, that's another story. <laughs> so um, how do you reconcile now, how do you juggle being a working artist, you like having to work at an actual job, how is that impacting your creative life now? It's tough because, you know, you know, having the full-time job was, you know, you have the money to do things, but you don't have the time. And, you know, so, you know, I made a decision to leave the permanent job and try to do the artist's life full-time, and that was not a good choice. Because then I, you know, I had all the time and none of the money. Yeah, and so then you start worrying about paying your rent, and yeah. it's like, yeah, it's not going to I, I don't have any creative juice for anything. I'm, yeah. I'm just stressed out all the time. Yeah. So, again, you know, I guess it, my creative muse always comes to me when I'm freaking unemployed. And <laughs> so I started writing a play, again. That's what you're doing now? That's your yeah. current project? I started writing a play. And... Um, I guess it was after this this crazy election from hell, and you know I'm in between jobs, looking for jobs, and you know again another friend of mine, Nancy Kim, who runs uh, Rising Circle Theater Collective, she invited me to this event they were having um, for women of color to, as a, to write their reaction to the election results, where every you know every. He had just won, and everyone was grieving and freaked out. And, you know, she said, just write whatever, whatever you feel your reaction is to this election. And I wrote this scene between a mother and a daughter who just, like, fight like cats and dogs. And they're just having the throwdown of all throwdowns. You, like, I hate you for this reason, and you messed me up because of this reason, and you don't understand because you're a spoiled brat, and da-da-da. So basically the, you know, the knockdown drag out that I had with my mom when I was 17. So I, had, I wrote that scene. I, I guess what inspired me in a way, or sort of disturbed me, it was more disturbing, not inspiring, didn't feel inspiring, but was when I found out that Hillary Clinton lost because... Women didn't vote for her. And not just any women, but white women didn't vote for her. And, and you know, I mean, there was a, a lot of hatred towards her through the election. But, you know, people have a long history of issue with Hillary Clinton. So I was like, oh, okay, maybe that's just historical stuff. But then at, what was even more disturbing is they asked the younger generation of women, of, you know, millennials and, and you know, younger women... Um, do you feel it's important to have a female president after, you know, now we've had a black president, do you feel like it's equally important to have a female be the president? And they said no. They didn't care if, if a woman, woman was, was a president, president at all. They didn't think it was important. 
huh, they didn't think it was something insignificant that they wanted to make happen. And it didn't have to be Hillary Clinton. They just oh, said yeah. any, you know, right. woman that your candidate that you would like, like, do you feel like wow. you really want that to happen? And when I was in college and in my twenties, that's, I wanted that so badly. <laughs> I was like, yes, I just want a woman president. I just couldn't understand that. And I felt like, wow, these, it's like, is it that we don't have history? Like that we don't understand what what people went through in feminism. Also, I took it per, on a personal level. I said, I said when I was a young teenager, I did not understand my mom and my grandmother's history. I didn't understand what they went through as women to just survive. Right. And to just, you know, raise a family and to just get through the day. And, you know, all of the women feminists who were harassed, arrested, beaten, raped, killed, people died for our right to vote. I mean, I mean, just, just in this last election in Alabama, there was a candidate who wanted to, who thought that, the, that it would be a good idea to get rid of all the amendments after the 10th Amendment. Oh, I heard about that one. Yeah, the, the, the right to vote. That yeah. was like the 15th, I think. Yeah, that would take away our rights yeah. to vote. Oh my God. I, I, we, uh... we couldn't own property. We, were not, we would not be free human beings. We would be back in slavery days. And we certainly couldn't be writing plays, could we? No, oh, we couldn't God be doing forbid. anything. Going back to your play, what's happening with this play? Well, I'm having my first reading. I'm and is, is, is it a one act at this point, or a full it's length? It's actually a two act play. Wow. And it's the first time I've actually written a multi-character full-length play. That's fantastic. Do you have a little piece of that that you're going to share with us now? Or what, what, what are you I going do. to do? Well, I have one piece from my solo show. Okay. And it's part of, it's sort of like the little seed nugget that gave okay. birth, birth to this play. So first we're going to hear, <laughs> a, so first we're going to hear a short excerpt of Will Work For, the solo mm -hmm. show by Daciel Acevedo, and then we're going to hear a short snippet from your new play called Legacy of the Saints. All right, let's hear it. Will Work For. She has her mother's hands. Her mom used to have long, beautiful, strong hands. How many sewing needles have gone through her mom's fingers? To the bone. Her mom only ever took a day off when each of her grandparents died. She doesn't think her mom's ever been unemployed. Her mom can't be. No pension, no benefits, no 401k plan. She remembers the unofficial policy at the factory where her mom worked was workers who wanted to keep their jobs secure for the coming year bought Christmas gifts for the boss's kids. Her mom still does that. There were years when she and her brother didn't get Christmas gifts, but she had to wrap Christmas gifts for her mom's boss's spoiled brats, who rarely, if ever, set foot in that factory, went to private school, and probably never worked a hard day in their lives. Her mom worked her ass off so that she could be the first in her family to graduate from college. So did she. What was it all for, all that work? Those student loans she'll be paying off the rest of her life. She is her mom's American dream. She's supposed to be the one that made it. She's supposed to take care of her mom. What kind of daughter is she? Wow. And that's from, to, we'll work for. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's hear an excerpt from Legacy of the Saints. 
a full-length play by Daciel Acevedo. The character is my grandmother uh, after her last child was born, and she has been told that her child has brain damage because she believes it's because her husband, my grandfather, beat her while she was pregnant. And she goes out to find him. And in the play, finds him with his lover. And, you know, she still has bruises on her face. She still has a dislocated shoulder, her arm in a sling. And, you know, she's very obviously not pregnant anymore. And she shows up. And, you know, she knows she's not supposed to be there because this is, what, 1950s DR? And, of course, some of this is, you know, artistic license taken because obviously I wasn't there. But, okay, this is what she has to say to her husband or her husband's lover. So this is a scene from it? Yeah. Okay. My wish is only for my husband to come home and fulfill his duty as a father to help me care for our sick baby. Since you're his keeper and serve has his eyes and ears and mouth for now, I'll tell you. Our son, Luis, is less than two weeks old and his father has yet to see him. The doctor said he'd never survive, but every day that I see the light come into the room and his chest still rising and falling is like I'm seeing a miracle. I feel elation, like seeing God with my bare eyes. And then sharp knives in my lungs when I remember the pain he's suffering to struggle through every single breath. I feel rotten with guilt every time my eyes weaken and let me fall asleep. I feel lower than a cockroach for growing, groaning when my back hurts and my arms ache so that I can barely pick him up. I feel unworthy of such a gift that I should be given this delicate little soul to care for and protect. That his pure little heart should be suffering with bruises that were meant for me. There is no redemption for the suffering I brought on him. And then I wonder, how could a husband, a father, who shares this gift equally not feel the same way I do? What could keep him away from his own flesh and blood reincarnated into this world? How could he not be humbled by God's grace given to us in this fragile piece of life? What is a husband a father for anyway? Why did God make them a part of this act of making life? It's not for me to know, but an equal part they are. If God could not inspire him to honor his family, then it falls on me to find a way. It is me who will be de making demands from now on. Please don't think that I come here for my own sake. If I shared no children with him, I should be happy to never lay eyes on his cruel face again. To me, he is nothing more than a deformed devil. I, lay, I, I consider the moment I took vows to him to be my sentence in purgatory that I will endure to pay for my sins on earth. There is a debt owed to his children, and he shall pay it from now on with work, diligence, and every penny that he can scratch out of the earth. He'll have to pay his debtors himself, and everything else he earns will be given directly to me. From now on, everywhere he goes, everything he does, every person he meets will be only as permitted by me. There's no hiding place for him. Nowhere he can go to escape me. God has remade me into his image, and as long as he shall will it, I shall be his sword, his axe, his messenger. 
my husband by baptism and by his own vows shall now be God's faithful servant. Be sure that my husband understands this and that he's expected at home. That is some powerful stuff. Oh my God, Dasil, I cannot wait until I am sitting in an audience watching this on stage. I know it's a long road ahead, but I'm just putting it out there in the universe. Thank you for sharing that. So if people want to um, know more about your fabulousness, where can they find you? Website, oh, blog, Facebook, so Instagram, tired. Twitter? I guess I'm more of a, I'm still, I'm, I'm so old fashioned I'm still on Facebook. That's okay. I, I haven't graduated. Facebook. I mean, you know, I'm I'm also like just very old school. You know, I'm I'm not quite hip to all the technology. Do you have a website? No, I don't. You, I need to get one. get one, get one, get one, <laughs> so you can put excerpts of you of yourself doing this work, man. Um, do you have a Facebook performer page? Um, no, it's all sort of mixed together. I have a will work for page okay. on Facebook. All right, so people could, so could like clips. that. So people could yeah. like that and, and, and find out more about where you'll be doing stuff in the future. Yeah. That's fantastic. So in closing, I ask everybody um, a question before we, we, we end our time together. And I think you're going to really like the topic of this being what we've been talking about for the last hour. Um, so, Dasil, my fish out of agua. <laughs> my weird, my, my pink striped sheep of the family. If there was one thing that you could tell the child sitting in alone in their top floor tenement walk up or in their little bedroom in a small town anywhere in the world that knows that they have this different beat inside them that makes them different from everybody else, but and everyone around them is telling them to keep that beat silent, you don't need to do that, what would you tell them? Don't let anyone tell you who you are. Know yourself and be yourself. Honor it. I, my, I think my, my director, my collaborator, Tamala, you know, she said to me one time, there was just some really hard things I was revealing, you know, and she said, this is what happened. This is your story. This is who you are. Honor it. Wise words from a wise woman. Mm. From the pink sheep and the red sheep. Woohoo! Thanks for being on the show, Dasil. Whoop, whoop. Mm. Hug on the air. Yay. Yay. She. not know her beauty she thinks her brown glory she thinks her brown body has no glory if she could dance naked on the palm trees and see her image in the river she would know yes she would know but there are no palm trees in the street no 
street and dishwater gives back no images she beautiful, haunting song, so fitting after Dasiel's interview, don't you think? That was from Nina Simone. It was called Images from her Aft- from After Hours in 1995. And Dassel picked that for her episode. And the dawn chorus was, the birds were mine. <laughs> well, kids, guess what? That's our show. You have been listening to Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. I know I usually blah, 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 a lot more. But this week I wanted to really showcase Dacil because I thought that she said a lot of good things that needed saying and needed listening. And I think she's a fantastic artist and I wish her the best with her new play. Woohoo! So we're going to close with another one of the songs that Dacil picked. This one is Prince. And it's called Pop Life from the Around the World for a Day album back in 1985. And you know the deal. Sponsor us, please. Go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.org, click on the Donate button, and you know how to do the rest. Stay tuned for Brooklyn Bandstand next. And guess what, kids? We will see you next week. Woohoo! And now, Prince. Prince.